This is the Business of Apps podcast, bringing you actionable insights from the leaders of the global app industry and the world's fastest growing apps. You can find more app news, data and analysis over at businessofapps.com. Welcome to the Business of Apps podcast. On this show, we invite app industry professionals to cover various topics. We promise to do our best to keep it both insightful but brief. In this episode, we have Nico Wittenborn, investor at Adjacent. Nico, welcome to the Business of Apps podcast. Thanks for having me. Terrific. Thank you for coming. Uh, so the summer is over, back to school, back to work. Finally, I can somebody I can talk to to record an episode. It's been really hard to find somebody in August. But yeah. here we go, September. So let's set the stage for this episode. And here we go. Uh, we all use these apps. When we work, we hook up on uh, Slack to discuss something with our colleagues. We set topics on Trello. When it's evening time, we like to stretch on the sofa and watch some stuff on Netflix, Hulu, or whatever you know streaming service you like. The former apps are known as SaaS, Software as a Service, and the latter are subscription-based apps. The question may not cross your mind, but why do we witness the boom of subscription apps now? And what lessons from the world of SaaS apps can be applied to subscription apps? In this episode, Nico will shed some light on these questions for us. But first, to kick things off, let's talk about you, Nico. Um, talk, uh, talk a little bit about yourself. How did you uh, get started as an investor? Yeah, no, happy to and uh, excited about the conversation. It's something that I think about a lot, so I'm sure we'll have fun discussing these topics. Um, I, I grew up in Germany, and um, in high school, I um, was very excited when the iPhone came out. I didn't have money to buy one, but I, but I really wanted to own one, and so I ended up um, buying one um, refurbished from the UK. I think I bought mm-hmm. eBay.com co UK imported it um, played with it and was able to amaze my friends as well. So I started a little side business throughout high school where I was importing these first generation iPhones, refurbishing them, reselling them. And um, that eventually got me um, in touch with a group of entrepreneurs in Berlin called team Europe that were building online businesses and also had a really small um, seed fund on the side, which was, probably one of the first or maybe the first venture fund in Berlin, really. And I ended up um, really connecting with them and doing an internship with them through my studies. So I really fell into all of this really early and um, had the luck that once I graduated, this just coincided with this small venture fund being spun out. And Mm -hmm. um, it was then called Point Nine. It still is called Point Nine, which I think is probably... You know, maybe not the, but one of the best for sure um, European venture funds. And they um, were kind enough to take me on as a, you know, fresh graduate because I had interned with them before. And so I ended up learning a lot from the two partners there, Christoph and Pavel. And the initial focus of Point Nine um, was really on enterprise SaaS and mm-hmm. marketplaces. And I ended up 
um, as you you know hinted at in in the introduction, really investing much more into um, SaaS companies than anything else in the first few years of my career or before I started investing in them. I first you know helped them do these investments and learned about it, and then when I first started doing my investments, it it, it started um, to become a bit of a mix of of both and. I, I I actually um, you know not to take too much away from 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 later discussion points, but I actually arrived at these apps or mobile I call them mobile subscription companies um, from SaaS because I saw that there is um, a bunch of overlap. You know, you have software that you are paying for on a recurring um, frequent on a on a recurring. The, on a monthly or yearly plan, <laughs> and um, that is something that, um, that that I knew very well from SaaS. Obviously, there's also big differences, but it just seemed to me like mm -hmm. there's something happening here that 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 I had seen in the enterprise SaaS world that made me more interested in these consumer subscription businesses. And so, I ended up investing in a in a bunch of of those, um, like Calm and um, a new bank called Revolut, um, with both Ponine and then fund that I worked for after Insight. And um, then started adjacent with a pretty big focus on these types of companies because I thought that they were still underrated and I had seen a bunch of them grow to scale and um, yeah, still exploring, you know, the, the different variants of, of what they can look like to this day. So to be very sure, the iPhone changed your life. Yeah, it, it did. Um, it, it sounds like a bit of a, you know, um, maybe rosy thing to say, but in, in retrospect, it definitely changed my trajectory. And it was also really curiosity that led me there, which is another interesting thing. And I think that it has also, I mean, just changed the world, you know, not just my life. Um, oh, yeah. But what Apple has done with the iPhone has really been, you know, there's a reason it's the most valuable company. Now, it's, it's a question of whether it will always stay this way. Always is a big word, so I say the answer is probably no, but maybe for a long time. And um, yeah, I, I would say that's true. Right, that that's totally true. The, the more you look back for all those years since the iPhone was kicked off in 2007, the more you see that how many things have changed since, and uh, many concepts, you know, in business and you know, in your daily life didn't exist back then. Now we're taking right. for granted, and some of them are just fading away as time goes by. Um, okay, I. I think by this point, it, it, pretty much all mobile users, people have a smartphones uh, in their pockets, uh, either have been using apps they're subscribed to or have heard about subscriptions. Um, but just for the, you know, for the sake of uh, everybody to be on the same page, let's define what is an app subscription and what are most well-known examples that people shouldn't be familiar with. Yeah, um, so I'll start with the examples because I think that they will make it quite obvious if, if anybody doesn't have an idea of what we're talking about. But for me, the kind of pioneers of this um, model, um, even though you know they were maybe slightly different in terms of what type of um, content they gave you access to, um, were Netflix and Spotify. So mm -hmm. you know, having um, a service that you pay for on a recurring basis, either monthly. Um, they both actually don't offer annual, which is another interesting discussion, but um, a lot of, you know, the second generation companies do. And so you, you pay for, for access to, to, to that software on a recurring basis, either monthly or annually. And that enables you to have a piece of software for a lower price 
and something that is continuously improving and um, really today I think has expanded into all different types of applications, right? As you, you mentioned, um, there is a lot of entertainment and, you know, you have a lot of productivity, prosumer things now happen. And, and then, of course, a lot of, you know, traditionally, um, traditionally, I guess, more um, network-driven um, applications like dating and, and so on, even maybe professional networks, you, you could bundle into that in, in some definitions. And so I think that, you know, the, the beginning was really these, these um, entertainment applications where the margin profile, interestingly enough, was very different to what we're seeing now with consumer subscription companies, right? Because if you look at a Spotify or Netflix, you know, they, they'll pay out most of the revenues, at least initially right now, they're changing their models to, to actually increase margins by having more of their own content mm -hmm. on the platform. But initially they were paying out the majority of the revenues to others. And so they came away with, I don't know, 20, 30% margin. The big shift that happened then, which, you know, I um, ended up witnessing, for instance, with um, companies like Headspace when they first launched out of the UK, um, where all of a sudden you had a company that had a recurring a revenue business model um, on the consumer facing side, but it was taking, you know, around, let's say 70% of the margins or so. Um, if you, you know, take out Apple's cut and then, um, you know, take into account that it goes down over time. Um, so, so that was really interesting to me because it started looking more like SaaS from the financial profile and mm -hmm. um, the overall adoption of mobile phones, of course, just, you know, kept growing and we have over a billion active iPhones today, which just makes this a huge, huge, massive tumber. There's a lot of, you know, smaller verticals and niches even that I think people don't grasp yet um, how significant they can be if you serve them with a really good product that people use for a long time. And so that, that was part of the thesis for, for starting adjacent. And um, it is, you know, I think what we are trying to define more even still today, because they always keep on changing of, you know, what they exactly look like and what type of services they actually offer. Yeah, absolutely. I find the topic of uh, the notion of subscription is really fascinating because we used to pay for magazines, newspapers. Well, even now, if you're subscribing to Washington Post or New York Times, you're paying a couple of bucks per month. It's actually a subscription to get the, those issues on a regular basis. But it used to be like the the only thing you can think of when you know subscriptions and also as a notion that you know, pops up in your mind would be a, uh, a publication. And the mm -hmm. whole notion was broadened by Apple and others. Uh, well, Apple were kind of a, a bit of a late into the game because they, they're still trying to catch up with Spotify with their Apple music. And right. as far as I remember, the numbers are not even to this day. Spotify is still being uh, ahead of Apple. But overall, yeah. like uh, right now, subscription, I think people will be uh, thinking about Netflix first, not the newspaper, not the magazine, right? Yes. Yeah, which, which is, though, um, I, I, I completely agree. Um, I think that we have had subscription services for a long time. You're right about newspapers, but if you think about it, even services like insurance, rent, all of that, you know, mm. oh, yeah. tied to real physical assets or services have been around for a very long time. So it's not really new that we pay on a recurring basis for something that we use for a long time. It's just that for software, it seems to be the evolution has been more first free, then pay once licensing um, or, you know, get the product 
on a CD and now it's moving towards this, you know, we, we pay on a monthly basis, which just aligns, I think, the the incentives much more with, with the with the creators and the users. And so I think that we're just moving towards a world where it makes more sense um, from what is possible and what can be done. But yeah, Netflix is definitely one of the examples. The other interesting um, data point maybe there is that Apple actually now has, I think, 600 million subscribers for their services, which makes them probably the biggest um, consumer subscription um, company, if you think about it in a way of, you know, the iCloud services and mm -hmm. arcade and, and music, of course, all, everything, Apple One now that they've launched. I think it's pretty easy to, to overlook that they've actually become one of the largest consumer subscription companies because they obviously see what is going on on the App Store and they're mm -hmm. trying to own more of that. And I think also become more of a software company over time, maybe not only by their own services, but also by making sure that they get their cut on <laughs> all the other services that are being right. delivered over their platform. So the trajectory was like this. Piracy, people didn't want to pay for anything that is not tangible, that is not physical. Then right. iTunes came along, people started paying for music. Then we have Apple Music, when people are paying for music, something not right. tangible, but on a monthly basis. Yeah. It's, a, it's kind of a psychological trajectory for folks to uh, adapt, exactly. to accept yeah. that it's okay, there's a value. It's just yeah. like another thing in your life that you can pay on a monthly basis, get a, get a benefit from yeah. that. So let's, let's cover briefly the pluses and minuses of the app subscription model. And uh, probably, like, are, are there any categories that, that may not, that don't fit to the app subscription model? Like we mentioned um, um, media companies, um, you know, um, arcade uh, plan from Apple, which is, uh, if I remember, 200 games that you can pay for right. as a part of your plan. And... Uh, what are the categories that don't fit to the subscription model? Probably for folks who are thinking about launching their ad business and they're considering what model uh, is applicable. So what do you think? Yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, I, I'll start by saying that the um, definition of what is or isn't a subscription app is really fuzzy today. I think that there, there's no real good definition for when it doesn't doesn't make sense i'll try to to give one or at least give some hints for a framework but i think it's definitely been um there's been a movement towards making everything a subscription which i also don't think makes sense you know i i, I do like subscription companies but i think the the product and and the actual usage of the product has to also allow for such a subscription to actually make sense and lead to a long-term success of the company. And so I would say that, you know, the, the best, I guess, guiding principle that I have is that it should be a habitual product. So it mm -hmm. should be something that people stick with. I, in my view, over years, um, some people might have a shorter time horizon of, you know, months or, or a year or two, but I think the best businesses and also the businesses that I have worked with that have come the furthest have always had a lifetime ignoring the value just a lifetime of years you know as of you know three four five maybe maybe more years um on for an average user or, or let's say for an average subscriber because um there's a lot of users that end up um, not sticking around because they're just trying it but if you look at just the subscribers i think that should be possible and so the question of where that actually you know goes is um i think it has to be software that has to be used at least you know uh, Ideally, a few times a week, maybe the, the least a few times a month to actually be worth a subscription. 
Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, depending on what type of product it is, some some would also warrant a lesser usage, I believe, because it could still be worth it compared to some you know alternative um, methods of spending that money in the real world. Like the, let's say Blinkist, for example, is just a good example. That I invest in Blinkist also with um, Insight and the value there is really that they do nonfiction book summaries, right? And mm-hmm. that is um, something that ideally, of course, you you know, the more usage, the, the better. But at the same time, the proxy that I always try to compare it to is how many books do you read a year, right? And how right. many books a year exactly. can you read with Blinkist, right? And so maybe it's worth it. Like if, if you end up reading 10 books and then you read another 30 with Blinkist, maybe that's worth it, right? Maybe you don't have to watch something or, 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 or listen to something every day to make it worth it. But I think the best ideas or the best, um, or the way I think about it, I don't know if it's the best way. It's, I'm still mm-hmm. working on iterating on, on how I look at these things. But the way I look at it is thinking like, okay, what is this product enabling me to do? What's the real world comparison? If any, some are really a completely new behavior, I guess, but what is that? And then, you know, we want to obviously be, um, see an engagement and a retention over time that somehow mirrors the real world behavior or is actually exceeding it. And so I think that's where subscription is really interesting. Okay. Uh, now let's, uh, kind of, uh, put head to head, uh, SaaS and consumer um, app subscription model. How do they, how do they step to each other? Um, but let's just compare them to make a connection and see what is what. Yeah, they're kind of two facets yeah. of the you know apps, but they're they're just a, one applicable to business, and the other to you know leisure, right? Right. Yes. No, they, they certainly. I mean, as I said before, I, I think they do have quite a bunch of similarities. Um, if you zoom out, but there's obviously some big differences and um, pros and cons for either. Um, the, the way I the way I think about it is, follow, I mean, there's a few dimensions that I would look at, and, and I actually did this also in my um, fundraising deck for the fund, where I basically look at here. Yeah, this is you know what SaaS looks like on these different dimensions, and this is what consumer SaaS looks like. And the mm-hmm. big you know advantage of an enterprise SaaS company is just that it's typically very sticky. And you have very low churn. I mean, at the end of the day, it's the same thing, but it's a, it's a very sticky product usually that people, you know, what I just said about um, long-term viability and people you know, being engaged and retained for a very long time. In the business context, the likelihood of that is just way higher because you're typically selling to a business and there's multiple users on it. There's a lock-in. There's not one person that just changes his or her mind. And it is something that has been proven for decades that these enterprise software companies exist um, for a long time and use very few of their customers if they have extra product market fit, right? And so as opposed to that, consumer subscription companies generally lose much more of their um, initial user base, uh, if you look at the cohort level, but they end up um, flattening out at one point, um, at least the good ones do, right? And this is something that, you know, I I ended up, I think, realizing um, earlier maybe than others. And, and, you know, it's certainly still hard to make those calls um, early on in the company's life cycle because you, you want to see that actual data to also, you know, have it validated. But the interesting thing is that after one, two years, these habitual companies that actually stick around, they end up flattening out in terms of their usage and retention. So even though there might be a big drop in the first year, let's say for a company that has an annual subscription in the second or third year, it almost doesn't drop anymore. 
And so if you cut out the first year, which, you know, obviously you can't just do that. And you want to increase this first year turn as much as possible, but if you can't cut it out, or if you look at the, the company from the second year forward, it actually looks very similar to SMB um, business in terms of the retention of the revenue. And so that is something that I found quite interesting because I think most people look at the first year, say, oh, yeah, let's just say, you know, 50% of the paid subscriptions churned. That means after year two, you have zero. But that's not really what happens. What happens is after the first year, you have 50, and after the second, you have, I don't know, 40%. And then it still stays around there for the years after, at least for a while. And that is, I think, what has is, what is made me more bullish on the ability for some of these companies, of course, only the ones that achieve that type of long-term tail to stick around forever. And what I've seen now, and you know, we, we can talk about this next, but what I've seen now, which I think is um, very interesting and also something that I've learned from enterprise SaaS is that traditionally there has been very little account expansion or revenue expansion for these um, consumer subscription companies on mobile. Um, you, you know, I think a, a Netflix has maybe increased their price like 20% year over year roughly by like introducing family plans, HD, bigger screens, like the different bundles and so on. Um, but when you look at SaaS, if you look, for example, for the, on the Salesforce um, price per seat, the average Salesforce price per seat since, you know, I don't know, 2005 or something like that, it would have just ballooned like crazy, right? You're not talking about, I think you talk about much bigger numbers. And so I think that this is something that we're still at the very early stages on understanding, right? Because what we're doing right now is really going for scale. So you launch an app in the app store, it goes out to, to people in 200 countries from day one, which is incredible, right? If you think about it oh, yeah. in terms of distribution, it's actually a big advantage towards enterprise SaaS um, because enterprise SaaS, you basically, you know, builds either a really big um, content and um, content flywheel and brand that allows you somehow to get inbound deal flow, or you have to build up at one level, most companies do it on enterprise SaaS, a, a big, big sales force that is, majority of your cost base and you don't have that consumer subscription which leads to you being able to launch a product and test it with much less funding and then if it works also being much more cash efficient which is you know something that i have seen over and over again even at a small scale that companies that are successful with this subscription model and have a relatively good and lifetime value, they actually end up being profitable relatively early. So there's even, you know, from my first fund with Jason, there's 22 companies. And then I would say probably 25% of them are profitable while still growing. And that's something that for an early stage fund is relatively unheard of. With Point 0.9, we never would have seen this because it just costs much more to actually build up that momentum with enterprise SaaS. But I think that, you know, mobile companies allow for that really cash efficient growth. And the big, you know, the big, big issue, and I'll, I'll stop after that because mm -hmm. there's, you know, many things that I could say on this topic, but the, the big, right. um, I think, really big question or, or concern with the churn numbers is still that basically need markets, you, you're constrained by the market size of, you know, whatever you're building for whatever demographic and that churn number. Out of those two, you can probably, you know, formulate where you will reach a ceiling with a consumer subscription company. Because at the point where you run out of market to accelerate your new subs, and that reaches an equilibrium with your churn to get to that, you know, flattening curve, then mm -hmm. will kind of lead to a stagnation. And so what I've seen for companies that are either in a very competitive um, market or in a market that is just not big enough because it's too niche 
is that the, these ceilings are being hit at a much earlier point, right? So it might be a, a company which is the ceiling at, I don't know, 2 million revenues, another at 10, 20 million, and another at 200, 300 million. But they're kind of ceilings which, if you have 100% revenue retention, you reach much later, right? Because you, yeah. you end up adding the rest of the markets. And of course, there will still be churn, but it, it's much less significant. So I think that's like, you know, maybe not when you start the company, but as you scale the company, that's, that's really something um, that I have to think about a lot because I'm trying to invest in companies that can reach at least a few hundred million in revenue. And so that is something that I'm trying to assess very early on, which is not easy, but, you know, sometimes it works out. Right. So um, kind of a takeaway lesson for me is that for, for a SaaS company, it's way either to reach out kind of a, at once simultaneously huge number of folks who are interested in this product because they're kind of a, either physically or are, you know, not physically they're working remotely, but they're working in the same company. You're selling the SaaS app to a big university. You're reaching out at the yeah. same time, thousands of folks at once. You're not uh, in the process of looking for all these people. And for a subscription app, you're uh, on the path of looking for all these people. And it's just, it may take um, months, a couple of years. It uh, depends on how distributed these people are, how easy to reach all these folks to get them interested in your product. And uh, I find it interesting that you're saying that after the first year, you may kind of, uh, it's kind of a launching experiment for a year long period to get the number of folks who are really dedicated to your product. So after one year, if somebody is still using your product, these are the folks you need to stick to. These are the folks who are really, um, loyal customers, loyal users for your app. Okay, let's switch the gears a little bit. You've been following a number of SaaS and consumer subscription apps closely. Uh, Do you have any overarching observations to share for the benefit of entrepreneurs who are aiming to build a big app business? What are the signs you're getting right and you're moving in the right direction? So I guess one of the signs you've just mentioned this uh, kind of a one-year cutoff when um, getting a certain number of people who are still sticking to your app. Are there any more um, signs to mention? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Let's um, continue on these um, subscription apps first. I think that what I found to be the best um, predictor of success um, early on is really the engagement and how people interact with the app. Um, So I think that there is... You know, there's one thing to to get people to pay, and then there's the other thing, like who's still actually using it in month three. And mm-hmm. that number is typically, if there's high usage in month three or let's say month six, then that's typically, let's say, the percentage of users that are highly active in month three or six are typically a very good predictor for what the retention after the first year will be. This is obviously not true always and not true for all else, but it's been proven to me at least to be a pretty accurate predictor of what can be done. And so I, that's what I pay a lot of attention to, at least when I go go and look at the data early on. If, you know, the company is not yet a few years old, but only three, six months, then that's that's really what I'm trying to dig in the most, is how, how actively are, are, are the users, or the, at least the paid users, interacting with the product. Um, so that, that, I think, is always, for me, the number one area to focus on as a new company coming into the space and i think a lot of people think that it's growth and growth is obviously important but it's really 
not worth anything if you don't retain the users. And so I always try to remind the founders that I work with and um, and, and people that want to start businesses that they should focus on the retention of the users that they get in the first place and then start accelerating and doing paid spend and all of that once they really have that product market fit with, with their users. Um, and so that's, that's you know, just on, on the, you know, indicator for for success side. And then I think the other component is like, where do you start, right? And and this is also something that we actually see this playing out in SaaS as well now, where when we started investing in SaaS with Point9, this is, um, you know, 2010, 11 in, in Europe and um, inside where I worked in New York, started investing in enterprise software in 96 in the US. And, and you know, so there's been a few decades of enterprise SaaS and it's been obviously a good market for a lot of investors. You know, the enterprise SaaS cap has been growing significantly in the last 10 years and it's still accelerating. And um, what that leads to once is that those investors mm -hmm. that were early in those markets, they end up, you know, making really good returns because nobody expected things to go this far and this fast. Um, but at the same time, it also creates a lot of interest in this category and makes a lot of new companies come into the space and look for what has not yet been founded. And so we see this in SaaS. We also see this in consumer subscription, which means that there's just more competition. And because we have this, you know, journey customer user base as a foundation, we just end up having um, to really choose our market well, or at least choose well this, the product that we're delivering into this market, because you end up competing with so many other companies today that you really want to be either much better or one of the first to create that category in some sense. And so this is what I think is very important. It depends what your ambition is, right? If you want mm -hmm. to create a, a, a lifestyle company and, and um, live of it. I think there's many, many markets that you can still enter that have been established for a while where you can actually make a really good living um, and, and potentially scale to millions of revenue. But for the type of companies that I'm interested in, um, I, I learned that they're usually in categories that have not been very established yet. So trying to think about, you know, what are the, I call it adjacent to today, you know, mm -hmm. categories that are not yet so explored, but could be mainstream in the future. And that's where I'm spending most of my time. So I think it makes a lot of sense to think about these things. And, and obviously if you're right and ahead of the curve that pays off in spades, and I would always myself as an investor choose a company that might fail, but might, you know, be the number one in, in a new category over the next fitness app, let's say, where there's just a bloodbath of you know failed companies and companies that have have reached also a significant scale but are very hard to outcompete. Now, what are your thoughts on what's coming in the mobile space? So, there's been a lot of talk about the AI, VR, uh, autonomous cars, uh, Internet of Things. Um, if my memory serves me correct, the Internet of Things doesn't happening yet. It's still uh, something people are hyping about, but they, there's no you know, single ecosystem. There, there are no standards. So, what um, probably you know, kind of a bridging the gap, but building a bridge between um, what's coming in a mobile space and subscription model. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I think that um, one of the reasons I like to focus on mobile is that um, I believe that the phone is not our last you know, frontier of mobile technology. I think it will be reduced in size and in increase in connectivity still, right? Like this, I think the surface basically, what I think is believe is that 
we might retain a desktop for certain types of work, but we will also see a reduction of the surface area that we have with technology. And so I don't think that we are at the final frontier with the mobile phone. I think that obviously it will keep developing and whether it will be, you know, some form of AR in, you know, in, in, in glasses or contacts or something completely different. And, and when that will happen, you know, who knows? I, I'm, I don't, I, I'm surely not, I actually don't know that, but I think it will happen. And I think that those that have already worked with a smaller surface area, which is, let's say, the phone versus desktop, um, are in a much better position to develop also software for that. Because I, I feel like the tools that you're developing for creating very, very sophisticated solutions and applications for, you know, something that allows for less uh, creativity, less screen space, and, you know, needs more input of other types of, um, of, of information like sensory data and um, maybe the camera and location and so on. I think those are the people that also will be most well positioned to then build for a new platform that has even less surface area, if that makes sense. So I think that, you know, I, I, I certainly don't expect the Jason to be investing in mobile apps in maybe also still, but not only in 10, 20 years from now. I think that there's going to be much different types of mobile hardware that will enable us to interact with software. And so I just think that, that these devices are really the proxies on how consumers reach software today. And mm -hmm. it will always evolve what that hardware piece will be. And yeah, it's interesting, but you know, it might take some time, but I, this is how I think long-term. Right. There's a very famous uh, video, probably just uh famous for me because I've seen it many times. It's a time-lapse video that shows a desktop, a bunch of uh, devices that were used to be popular in the 80s, 90s, calculator, watch, map, and the whole, like, the trajectory of the video comes to a laptop, that it's a mobile phone, mm -hmm. that the, the mobile phone actually replaces all this, like, 30, 35 yeah. items on the table, that all of these items yeah. collapse to one device. And in 10, right. 20 years, it's going to be an update for the yeah. time-lapse video, something that is exactly. uh, tangible at this point, but should yeah. be different, like something that kind of replaced the mobile phone. Yeah. Okay, um, we've covered the major topics on the table, and there are just a few quick questions that I'm asking every guest on the show just to help the audience to know these people a little bit better. So question number one, what smartphone do you have now? Uh, have you been switching between iOS or an Android or just staying the line all the time? I have a, I, I have an iPhone, so I mostly work on my iPhone. Um, I also have a Google Pixel, which I use um, to test things. And I used to have one, I have an American and a European SIM card. I used to have one in each so that when mm -hmm. I travel, I, I'm forced to switch a little bit and, and mm -hmm. see what's happening. Um, but now iPhone has this eSIM feature and I haven't been really yeah, good at switching yeah. around because I just, I'm so locked into the, into the ecosystem also on, on my Mac and I use the iPad. And so I've, I've been pretty loyal in recent years towards Apple. Um, yeah, so it's, it's mostly an iPhone that I use. What was your first mobile phone? My, my first uh, mobile phone must have been a... Nokia 50, I'm, I'm European, right? So Nokia was ruling mm -hmm. everything around here. <laughs> and it was um, a Nokia 5110, I think, which is a, a big black, kind of looks like the ones that they had in the phones, you know, like in the limousines, but just a little smaller. 
um, but it had snake. So that was cool. Yeah, totally. Um, now imagine you've left your smartphone at home, uh, for whatever reason, what would be the most missing feature for you? Um, I'll, I, I'll say that I actually do leave my smartphone at home. Um, so I was on <laughs> in the park, <laughs> not, not always, it, that's mm -hmm. certainly not true. I'm certainly an addict and on my phone way too much. But, um, this morning I was in the park with my daughter and, um, I, I left it at home because it just keeps me from being, you know, on the phone too much. And, and I, I think that I, I, and most of us have to actually make a real effort to, to try to do that less. And so I, I'm, I'm, I'm well aware that I spent too much time on my phone and I actually try to find moments where I don't use it. Right. So it's a good uh, dovetail to my next question. Uh, what new technologies are you most excited about the iPhone? And I'm not asking specifically, like, are you waiting or, uh, um, or looking for some more stuff in terms of hardware yeah. software? Because it's different for, you know, all of us. Uh, some of us are yeah, trying to yeah, limit the use of sure. your, your mobile device. Some of them are looking for more <laughs> stuff to add. So, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm getting the... the feeling that you're on the same side as I am because uh, we're trying to limit and just stick to the device less and use it more as a tool. Whenever you need a hammer, yeah. it's just, just an example I like to give people. You're using the hammer, then you put it away and go on with your life. So anything you, right. you like, uh, probably with these recent updates for iOS uh, is something you're uh, really excited about, like this shift between yeah. day and work in notifications, right? Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I think it's good that the operating systems are starting to do more. I also, there's one company I'm working with called Opal, which is actually trying to um, help people build better screen time habits. Um, and they're doing it through a VPN. It's a pretty smart idea where you actually can cut out some of your, you know, applications under for certain times and um, create real routines around it. So I, I think that's good. And I think that there also has to be a more... Um, behavioral change. I, we're, we're the first generation. I mean, I was a teenager when the iPhone came out and I then started using the phone, you know, when I was in high school and since then I haven't put it down basically. And so I see my daughter now always reaching for the phone because obviously she sees us and she knows that it's YouTube and stuff like that. Right? Oh, yeah. And so I think that we're, yeah, we, we, we just, we've witnessed this big shift and I think it's similar to a lot of other things that we have created and um, enjoyed, you know, excessively for a long time. I think Hopefully there will be, you know, a, a, um, a counter movement at one point where we will start to have more etiquette and, and a place for when we use these things and not have it on us always, especially when we're with other people. And yeah. so I, I like, I like that direction, even though I'm obviously, you know, very exposed and invested in the app ecosystem. I think that we don't have to, you know, there's also dangerous and we shouldn't, we shouldn't exaggerate it. And so I, I like that. Then something else, there's two other areas that I'm interested in at the moment. Um, beyond that is one, I see more and more um, really smart because you mentioned IoT earlier. And it's, I don't know if I, yeah, it, I probably can put it into IoT where you have more, I think now hardware that's connected to the phone and offering a subscription, right? So if you think about things like Aura or Whoop um, that are syncing with your phone and giving you much more data, um, there's also, I, I, I've invested in a, in a pet tracking um, application called Tractive, which allows you to see where you, it's not kind of like a Fitbit for, for your dog or like a Whoop for your dog if you want. Um, and I think that there's more interesting things happening um, in that where like the phone is, is the central um, 
you know, point of um, access and, and maybe the, 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 the aggregator of the information and data. But I think that there will be different, different um, devices that can still be really well integrated. And that's something that I find interesting. And lastly, the, the area that I've been saying, I've, I've done some um, investments in crypto with Point9 already in 2015 and, and started buying early. And I think that what is happening there now is certainly crazy. And, um, you know, there's a lot of hysteria around it, but there's also some really interesting approaches to how we actually interact with the technology that has been reinvented by blockchain and crypto applications. And so I think that there will also be a wave of applications that make it to the phone that actually are enabled by these technologies. And so I'm, I'm trying to spend some time there and see um, what will be the first few mainstream applications that are actually based on, on blockchain or crypto technology. Gotcha. And now before I let you go, uh, just a very final question. How can people get in touch with you and get more information about what you do? Yeah, um, so I'm a pretty open book. I have my website um, at adjacent.com. There's not much on it, but my email address is on it. <laughs> and um, That's cool, I yeah. am also pretty avid. <laughs> yeah, the important things, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's also a link there to my Twitter um, at NCSH, where I am also pretty active and um, I can be reached as well. So people can always ping me. Um, I try to respond to everything. And I am obviously not investing in everything, but I try to give people reasons why, <laughs> if I can. Awesome. 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 Uh, thanks everyone for your time and coming on our podcast, Nico. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for your time as well. And that was Nika Wittenborn, Investor at Adjacent. To listen to more episodes, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts. Just search for Business of Apps and you will find us easily. We release episodes on Mondays, so subscribe and you'll be able to get new episodes on your smartphone, tablet, or computer as soon as we release them. And please don't forget to leave us a review and comment on iTunes. It is highly appreciated. And all episodes will also be available on businessofapps.com. Thank you for listening. See you next week. Thank you for listening to the Business of Apps podcast. For more, head on over to businessofapps.com.